Welcome to the Real Estate Marketing Podcast. My name is Jerome Lewis. I'm your host for today. Real Estate Marketing Podcast is a podcast where we talk marketing, tech, business, and leadership. We talk these things for real estate agents, real estate investors, and real estate entrepreneurs. The Real Estate Marketing Podcast is a podcast that has two purposes. Purpose number one, to educate and inform our audience and listeners. Purpose number two, Sharad, to spotlight you, your business, your service, or your product in a way that provides value to you, including market exposure and content creation. With that, we have a very special guest, Sharad Mata, Meta, founder and CEO of, what is it? Is it RE Simply or ReSimply? Yeah, either is fine. ReSimply. After continuously being frustrated while using multiple softwares to run one business, Sharad decided enough was enough. And so he created an all-in-one real estate software which helps people close more deals, save time, and do it all at a lower marketing cost. At RE Simply, our passion is to create the best software for real estate investing business, and we aim to be the only software program that real estate investor needs to run a successful, scalable business, says Sharad. Believe it or not, since becoming a full-time real estate investor, Sharad has completed over 600 deals in the past 10 years. Sharad is primarily active in Lake County and Indiana markets while managing his business from, from California, where he resides, using RE Simply. Sharad is able to manage three to four rehabs a month while living in a completely different state. Sharad, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Thank you, Jerome, for having me on the show, man. Excited to be here. Absolutely. So I'm excited. I was reading your bio. And um, before I ask you this question, I want to hear in your own words, take us on your journey. Like what got you involved? It talked about it. We talked about it a little bit inside of the bio, but I want to hear like what were your frustrations and what led you from being like primarily a real estate investor to, hey, I'm going to create this software so I can better help people and better help myself. Yeah, so uh, my name is Shiraj. I live in Carlsbad, California. It's uh, north of San Diego. Uh, so I've been full-time investor since March 2011. I bought my first property in August 2010. Or yeah, August 2010, and I bought two or three properties, and you know, just happened to be at the right place, right time. Living in Chicago at that time, bought my first property in Indiana, and I saw kind of what the market was doing. I used to be an accountant, so you know, I'm okay with numbers. So I saw what the market was doing, the rate of return. So I thought, hey, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I decided to jump, you know, uh, both feet in, and uh, just do real estate full time. So I started buying rental properties for myself. And you know, what led me down that path was um, I read a book called Millionaire Real Estate Investor. Uh, and that kind of you know, led me down the path of becoming a um, real estate investor. So I started doing that. And uh, then you know, I was wholesaling a lot of properties to Australian investors. Uh, so around 2011 through 14, 15, because the Australian dollar was very strong against US dollar. So you had a lot of overseas investors buying properties in US. And I happened to connect with the company. And so I was selling them properties. And then all the money that I was making, I ended up buying, you know, I would just go out and buy more rental properties for myself. And 2015, I moved from Chicago to Carlsbad, California for my wife's job. And, uh, and I still had this business, you know, I was doing about uh, 40, 50 deals a year. And uh, now I'm living in California and I have this business in Indiana, so I cannot just, you know, drive 
once a day just to go check on my properties. So I started looking at some systems and processes to implement in my business. Uh, and that's kind of when I started recently, you know, back then, uh, pretty much everyone was using Podio. And um, I didn't like the idea of just, first of all, I didn't like the way it looked. And secondly, I didn't like the idea of I would have this software, but then I would need a bunch of other software for this software to work. I just just didn't like that idea. I like things very simple. You know, I like just to log in and just run my business. And with that, Podio wasn't an option. So I looked around, didn't find anything. And that's kind of when I thought, you know what, I'm just going to create something for myself uh, that I need in my business specific to me. You know, if somebody else uses it, great. If not, at least I'll get enough value out of it that it will be worth, uh, you know, my time and it will be worth it for my business. And that's kind of when I started recently. Okay. All right. So one of the things that you mentioned, and we, uh, I don't have enough people come on and talk about it, but I, I did myself was uh, wholesaling, like, or, or being an investor, like out of state and like, you've even done some stuff like out of the country. So can you take us through, like, what is that process? Like a lot of people say you must be local. You can't really invest out of state. You absolutely have to be boots on the ground. I'm going to hear from your perspective. Like, is that true? Or do you have like processes or like, just take us through what your thoughts are on that? Yeah. I mean, uh, is it easier if you have boots on the ground or if you live locally? Yes, of course. But is it necessary that you live locally? No, you know, um, as long as like, you have to understand the fundamentals of the market, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you pay for a property and depending on your exit, if you're gonna rehab it, wholesale it, you know, rent it out, you have to understand your numbers. Numbers are numbers, right? It doesn't matter if the numbers are gonna work for you in California and the numbers are gonna work for you in Indiana, you know, if it's going to work for you, it's going to work for other people, you know, assuming you're not missing out on anything. So coming from an accounting background, I, you know, I tend to think in terms of numbers, say, if the numbers make sense, that's, that's kind of all the data that I have. I try not to let my, you know, uh, outside influence or my judgment opinion about something uh, influence my decision. It's if the numbers make sense, they make sense, right? Of course, you have a little bit more risk if you're investing out of state, um, you know, for example, when first I moved to California, um, you know, I had, uh, I remember I had my plumber call me, uh, the first call I got, he, he called me and he said, hey, there's a leak in the house. So what would previously happen was if I was living in Chicago and I was living in downtown Chicago, if my plumber called and said, there's a leak, I would literally drive down 30 to 45 minutes, look at the leak and say, yep, there's a leak, you know, give me an estimate. Now, that I didn't have that option, I was forced to come up with systems. I said, all right, if my plumber is calling me for a leak, I don't, I, I cannot just drive down or I cannot fly down every time he calls me for a leak. So we came up with this system. I said, all right, I just do a video call, call me in a video, show me what's going on. So, you know, we, we started coming up with those systems where I could have done this while living in Chicago also. I didn't necessarily have to come up with these systems once I moved to California, but I was forced to do that. Um, but yeah, if, if you're investing out of state, you come up with a system that you know has all the checks and balances, and it could be an amazing thing. You know, For people that are living in expensive markets like New York, California, Chicago, uh, and you know they, they don't necessarily have the option to invest in their own local market, 
you know, pick a market that you feel comfortable with. Maybe, you know, you don't necessarily live in that market, but, you know, maybe it's a place that you visit a couple of times a year, right? Maybe it's a place that you have some relative. Maybe it's a place where you have some friends that can kind of give you a little bit background about um, the neighborhood, you know, what neighborhood to invest in, what market, what's the market like, and just the due diligence that you would do in your own local market, do the same thing, but you're doing it in a different market. I think it's the, it's the initial fear of investing in a market that you can't physically visit all the time. But once you get over that, you know, there's like tons and tons of opportunities to invest in out of state. Thank you. Um, Cause I was going to mention that like people will say local and be boots on the ground. But one of the things that I found was like, that it was like competitive, right? Like I live in Philadelphia, that was my market and it's not nearly as competitive or the prices aren't as high as in California and New York, like you said, but it still was a lot of competition. So cool. I had to figure out where can I go and, you know, leverage myself so I can, so there's less competition, especially when I was newer, right? You got a lot of people with experience and they're coming in, they got more money, they got more experience, more sophisticated like how do you overcome that and that's the one of the reasons why i went and started doing virtual uh deals yeah i think i think other thing is you know you, you might also be constrained uh by other factors right let's say if i live in california i want to buy rental properties it, mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense for me to buy rental properties in california because it's not mm -hmm. going to be cash flow positive or if i'm looking to you know refix and flip a property right I, it, it's going to be super expensive for someone starting out to buy a property, you know, for six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars and then put another hundred fifty, two hundred thousand dollars and then, you know, make profit on it. So, you know, depending on what you're looking to do, uh, it might be, you know, eventually like most investors that I talk to eventually, you know, they don't want to keep wholesaling forever. You know, wholesaling is a way for them to build long-term wealth, which is rental properties, even like house flipping. So if that's the goal eventually to build long-term wealth, then you want to start looking at, okay, what market do I want to invest in? That's going to give me the opportunity to start building long-term wealth. You know, if you're living in California, New York, you know, given how expensive the housing market is, it might just not make sense. I mean, then you might be forced you might not even have an option to look in your local market. You might be forced to look in a different market to invest in. Okay. Um, so I want to, I want you to tap into your accounting brain. We're going to do some numbers, right? Um, and, and I know this varies by market, right? Like where people should be purchasing 75%, 80%, 65%. But from your perspective, I'm a brand new investor, right? I'm trying to get involved in real estate. Are there some numbers that I be should look at, that I should be looking at? Is there a formula? Like what should I be doing to like get started and get my feet on the ground so I can start becoming a real estate investor? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I would say the most important thing is it's like, you know, once you paid for a house, there's no going back. There's no mm -hmm. different policy. So the most important thing you have to keep in mind is what are you paying for the house, right? Mm -hmm. Now, how do you come up with that is, let's say if you want to, let's just walk through an example of, let's say if I want to flip a house, right? Let's say, so first thing is a seller calls me and says, yeah, I have this house for sale. The first thing that I want to figure out is how much is the house worth once it's fixed up, right? Generally, the investor or the homeowners that are calling us, they have a they have a financial need. If the house is in some distress, um, so you know you have to factor in that the house needs some work. Let's say in this case, you know one two three Main Street, we figured out the house is worth two hundred thousand dollars. Okay, 
So now I'm not going to pay this person $200,000 because that doesn't leave me any money. Uh, you know, that doesn't leave me any, um, you know, margin to make profit. Okay. So I start with $200,000. Now I want to make, you know, some money on it. Typically you want to, you know, you want to kind of factor for 10 to 15% of the selling price as your net profit. So if you are, if the houses were 200,000, you know, you want to make minimum 20 to $30,000 on that. So you factor that. Uh, now you mentioned that there's, you know, 75%, 80%. So there's like a 70% formula that a lot of people use. We use it, it's just very easy to calculate. So you look at the, the ARV, which is after repair value, the value of the house once it's fixed up. So let's say in this case, it's $200,000. Then you take 70% of that, which gives you 140,000. Then you subtract the repairs on that house. Let's say in this case, the house needs $30,000 worth of work in order to bring it to the value of $200,000, okay? So you take 200,000, do 70%, you get 140,000, and then you take 30,000 out of it. So you get 110,000. So that gives you maximum offer that you can offer on this house and still make money. So in this case, you know, this 70% factors in all the other uh, costs associated that you have with the house. If you decide to list the house with a with an agent, you know, you have five to 6%. So that'll be all baked into that 70% formula. So let's say I buy this house for 110, I put 40 into it. So my all-in cost is 140,000. I list this house on the market for uh, 200,000. Now there's going to be some, you know, holding costs that you have taxes, insurance, you know, if you borrowed money, uh, then you have the, you know, interest cost. So one, one thing that you want to start doing as an investor, even if you're not borrowing money, even if you're using money, still factor in that cost in your numbers, right? Because that's an opportunity cost for you. If you were not investing in this house, you would be doing something else with the money. So you want to still factor in the cost, even if you're using your own money. Um, so you have all-in cost of 140. You put the house on the market for 200,000. You sell it at say, you know, you end up paying between your agent and, you know, other seller paid closing costs. You end up paying, you know, 20, 10%, which is 20,000. So now you're left with 180, so 200,000 minus 10%, you get 180. And then you have some, you know, your holding costs and whatnot. That's another, let's say, you know, eight to 10,000. So you come to about like $30,000 in profit on that deal. It's, it's a very simple calculation. That's what we use in our business and it works out. You know, again, the most important thing is the price that you're paying for the house. In this case, if I had paid $120,000, that just comes straight out of my profit. Now, if you look at instead of 110,000, if I had paid, you know, 100,000, that adds straight away $10,000 to my profit. So, so the buy price, I would say, is the most important number, but then that buy price comes from your after repair value of the house and then how much the house is gonna cost. So everywhere you can negotiate a little bit, you know, sometimes what's gonna happen is by the time, you know, let's say, and, and it's happened with a lot of investors, it's happened with us. We buy a house thinking we're gonna sell for 200,000, also the market shifts, we end up selling the house for 210, 215,000. Now that's extra 10, $15,000. I wasn't genius, I wasn't smart. It just, I lucked out because the market went up, right? Uh, or I was able to negotiate with my contractor instead of 30,000, you know, I negotiated 25,000. So that's $5,000 extra in my pocket. So those, that's where you want to kind of, you know, uh, tweak things. 
But again, you want to start with what's the max you want to pay for the house. And that comes from your after repair value and how much the house is going to cost to fix up. I know it's a very long answer, but you know, th those are like the fundamental things. Like even now in our business, day in, day out, that's what we look at. Just the focus on fundamentals of house buying. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, you've you've been investing since 2010, you said? 2010, correct. 2010, and here we are in 2023. Uh, what is like the most significant change you've seen between investing then and now? Uh, most significant, a couple of things. You know, of course, the house prices have gone up. Like mm -hmm. looking back, I wish I had bought and held on to more rental properties for myself. Um, mm -hmm. But the most significant change is it's a lot more competitive market because how easy it is to invest now, how easy it is to be a real estate investor, you know, which is good and bad. Uh, like, for example, if you want to be an agent, right? Uh, you know, I have my in-laws visiting me from India. So if they tell me, hey, I'm a real estate agent, I'm going to say, all right, show me your license. You know, show me that, you know, you, you work with a broker. Now, but if they say I'm a real estate investor, I have no way to question that, right? Anybody can get up and say, I'm a real estate investor. They can go pull a list, uh, skip trace it, and start texting or calling, you know, those homeowners. It's, that, that's one of the significant changes I've noticed over the last, like since I've started investing, how easy it is for someone to call themselves an investor and just start, you know, marketing to people. Uh, but what happens with that is a lot of newbie investors, they're not educated about the market. You know, it's easy to get someone to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm interested. Like let's going back to the $200,000 example, you know, you, you know, if I were starting out new, I may just get excited and offer this person 150,000, not knowing, you know, the, my numbers. Now the homeowner has set an anchor of 150,000 because there's somebody out there who offered 150,000. You know, a lot of homeowners will not be able to tell a difference between an experienced investor or a newbie investor. They're going to get set on the price of 150,000. Now, if I go in after that investor and I say, hey, based on the numbers that I've run, the max I can pay is 110,000. Now, this homeowner comes back and says, no, you know, I had, you know, Joe Smith offer me. 150,000, that's what I want. But you know that number is not possible. Like no investor in their right mind, you know, that knows their number would be willing to pay 150,000. Now this investor, newbie investor, you know, it's probably going to wholesale, goes out, gets the property in the corner for 150,000. But then what, what are the next things? There's nothing that this investor can do because if he comes to me and says, I have this property in the contract, would you buy 460? I'm going to go through the same numbers that I went through, you know, in a few minutes ago. And I'm like, no, there's no way, you know, I can pay 160. I, the max I can pay is 110. Uh, so I think that's kind of what the biggest change I've noticed is how competitive the market is because how easy it is for someone to just, you know, wake up and say, I'm a real estate investor and then just start investing or, you know, start marketing and start getting these people to raise their hands. And that ends up affecting everybody else that comes after them. Thank you for sharing that. Um, could you tell us about like, it's along the same lines, but could you tell us like the most important lesson you've learned over this, what, 12 year span? 
I think the most important lesson I learned and I saw, you know, try to follow it to this day is like be in your lane, mm-hmm. you know, uh, know what you are good at and then just go deep in that, right? Rather than like for us, we're good at flipping one to four units. We don't look at commercial properties. That's something we're not comfortable with. That's something, you know, we've never done. We don't want to do, uh, you know, that we're really good at flipping one to four unit houses, right? And same thing gone recently. We're really good at like being a software for real estate investors and real estate investors only. Um, you know, those, those, I think people get distracted by shiny objects. You know, I think also like in the last 10, 12 years since I've been investing like social media and like influence in social media has a lot to do with kind of people, how people think about, you know, not just investing, but just about day-to-day living. Um, I think that influences a lot of people where they see someone on Instagram or YouTube or whatever new social media platform out there right now talking about, hey, look, I made $50,000. They, you know, flash a copy of the check saying, hey, look, I made $50,000, you know, doing this deal. Uh, And they make it seem so simple that people get excited, inspired by it, but they don't understand that the person who did that, there's a lot of work and effort that went into that. It just did not happen overnight. You know, there's no shortcut to success. Um, you You just have to know what you're good at and then just double down on that. If you're starting with wholesaling, just stick with it. You know, don't say, hey, I'm going to be a wholesaler, then I'm going to do lease option, then I'm going to do, you know, uh, like flipping, then I'm going to be a landlord. You know, just pick one lane and then just go deep into that. All right, next. Uh, Tell us about your least favorite deal. And after that, I would like to hear about your most favorite deal. My least favorite deal. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a deal we, I bought with, this was in like 2014 or 15, I think. So we bought this house, um, again, we got a little out of our lane. So it comes back to that, you know, we're good at even like within single one to four units, we're good at buying houses at a certain price point, right? I mean, in our market under 250 to 300,000 uh, max, like we like to stay under that. So we bought this one house, um, you know, I was buying at the foreclosure auction. This was a light bidding going on. And I think I got a little carried away with the house uh, and ended up buying with another person that I was bidding with. We decided, hey, instead of like bidding each other up, why don't we just, you know, buy this house together and then flip it? I think I, I shouldn't have done that. I should have, you know, stuck to, hey, if I'm not going to buy it, I'm happy they can buy it. Let's not, you know, partner up with someone just right on the spot, not, you know, knowing anything about them. So we decided to do that. Uh, and this was a $575,000 house. Um, uh, so we ended up doing that um, and it did not go well. Uh, ended up spending way too much on the rehab. Um, you know, this other uh, partner involved, nothing against that, but just we had different ideas about the house uh, and they were spending way too much on the house. And uh, at the end, you know, we're just happy to kind of walk away. 
from the deal. Um, so that was one. Another one we just did recently, actually last year, uh, not learning from that because it had been like six, seven years since I had done that deal. So kind of, you know, it was another teaching moment. Last year we did another deal where, you know, from PPC we got this, um, we got this lead. The house was worth about 700,000. Um, and then the seller wanted 400 or 450,000, I believe. And we're like, wow, this has a really good spread on it. You know, we should definitely do that. So we did that, bought the house for like 450 or 460. I don't remember exactly. The idea was to put 50,000 into it and then sell it for about 700,000. Like we were going to list it for 675 just to, you know, make a quick buck on it. Um, first of all, we went a little bit over budget. Actually, we bought it for 485 now, I remember. And we ended up being all in for 550,000 on that house. So we were a little bit over budget on our rehab. It was a big house, didn't factor in everything that needed to go in. All in for 550,000. And then this was March or April of last year as the interest rate started going up. So we put the house on the market for 6,975, uh, started out with that. Didn't get any in, uh, anybody to buy it. You know, we're not even getting any showings. I think initially people just freaked out with the interest rate going up. Ended up sending it for 585000 cash to someone. And it took us like about good six to eight months after factoring in all the interest costs and all the uh, costs associated with it. I think I lost about $25,000 on that deal. But it was a good learning lesson for me knowing that I made the mistake of, uh, you know, not staying in our lane and, you know, just going out of our comfort zone and suffering because of that. Okay. Tell us about your favorite deal. Uh, favorite deal would be, I think I would say, uh, this came through a relationship with our title company. Uh, this was back in 2014. I was until 2014, I hadn't actually flipped a house. Uh, like, you know, by flipping, I mean like sold a house to a homeowner. Um, you know, we had done like other properties where we rehab them and sell them to overseas investors, but it wasn't like a true, you know, fix and flip deal. So uh, one thing I'm big on is building relationship with people that I'm going to be working with, uh, you know, over a long period of time. So this title company that we have been working with, we had done about like 250 deals until uh, until then with them. And this title company put us in touch with a local lender that was getting rid of about a portfolio of like 18 or 20 properties. And, you know, the title company put us in touch with the lender, local lender. We got in touch and, uh, you know, we talk, We started talking about it and the numbers made sense. We said, hey, we'll buy all 18 to 20 houses. Uh, four or five of those houses were not in the area that, you know, we like to buy. And so we ended up wholesaling it to an agent at that point that I was working with. Uh, so we made like 20, 25,000 on those. And then six or seven of those properties I kept for myself as into properties. I still hold them. And there were actually two properties in there that, would not have made sense as a rental property, but uh, they were like really good, like your bread and butter fix and flip deal. So those two properties we flipped, made another like 50, 70, 75,000 on those two deals. Uh, and that just kind of led me down the path of fix and flip. I wasn't doing that until then, 
and also the relationship that came out of it. I'm still working with that lender. You know, I have a line of credit with them. I bought a bunch of other properties from them. That was that was like one deal, not just the deal itself, but the relationship that came out of it. Thanks. You, you mentioned relationships several times. Could you share your insights on the importance of relationships in this business? Uh, I mean, the relationships are very important. You know, one thing is like, um, if you say you're going to do something, you know, you want to make sure you follow through on that. Um, don't say something that you're not sure if you will follow through on that or not. I mean, it's just not a business advice, you know, it can just apply to anything in life. You know, if you're married and you tell your wife, Hey, we'll just we'll go out this Friday night for dinner. And then you're like, Oh, you know, like I have a pickleball game. I have this, I have this, you know, and then you don't do that. It just, you know, it, you lose trust in that relationship so for us in business what we like to do is if you're working with a title company for example we want to make sure we give them as much business as possible you know we're not going to switch over to different title companies to save like 50 100 bucks or something if we have that you know uh, that opportunity to save money then we'll go to a title company and say hey you know we're paying you thousand dollars per closing uh, this new title company is offering us the same deal for 750. Is that something you're able to match or, you know, help us out with, give us a volume discount um, and then do that. But I, th I think relationship, building relationship with, you know, the companies that you're working with, the, your team member, uh, that is the, the best thing you can do in your business. Like for me in my business, I live in California, right? We flip houses in Indiana my project manager that manages all the projects lives in California, one hour north of where I live. And my lead manager, she lives in Canada. So we don't have anybody local in our business. It's very, very virtual team, um, but it's all based on relationship. The contractors that we're working, I've never even seen the contractors that we work with. I've never talked to them. I've never, I don't even have their phone number. It's my project manager that's managing everything but it's all built on trust, all built on relationship, knowing that, hey, I'm going to do this for you, but this is what I expect out of you. As long as you do that, I'll make sure that I do my part as long as you, you know, you're doing your part. Uh, and that goes a long way in building trust with the companies that you're working with, trust with the team that you have. Uh, and then just being, you know, the guy that uh, if you're going to say something, you're going to like follow through on that. Thank you for sharing that. What are the guidelines you would give someone who is looking to close their next deal in 90 days? I would say uh, pick a marketing channel that you feel comfortable with, right? Um, don't go based on what is working for other people. You have to look at your budget. You have to look at your comfort level. For example, if I were starting out, right, I don't, feel comfortable cold texting. I mean, again, the regulations are changing. So like, you know, you can't just start cold texting anyone, but let's say even if like back in the day you could, or you still can, um, I don't feel comfortable doing that thing to me. That's spamming. Uh, you can cold call, but that's just not my personality. I just, I don't feel comfortable doing that. So I have to look at that. Uh, then for me, I would start out with direct mail, pull a list of absentee homeowners, Depending on your budget, you know, I'll start with absentee. If um, if you get 5,000 people, that's more than what you want to spend, you know, mailing to them, then add another filter of vacant. I'll start with absentee. And if that gives you too many people, it should not in most markets, you should be able to start with your absentee list. 
So you want to start with absentee, 30% equity, and five years of ownership. Just keep it simple. Send direct mail. But one thing I would say is, at the end of the day, every marketing channel works. It does not matter. Every single marketing channel works as long as you stick with it long enough. If you are going to do direct mail one month, jump to cold calling, jump to text messaging, and nothing is going to work. You might as well not do anything. You know, when people come to us and say, hey, which marketing channel I should start with? I say the one that you can stick with the longest. If you're going to, you know, even within direct mail, if you're going to do absentee one month, you're going to do probate another month, you're going to do driving good all third month, and you're not being consistent with anything. You know, uh, that's the most important thing in marketing is be consistent. But if it were me, I would start with absentee list, uh, mail them and mail them every 60 days and then just be really good with follow-up like know your numbers and then 90 days might be a little bit tight but you know you should be able to get something some you know interested uh people insert uh, qualified leads within 90 days and depending on how good you are with the closing that you should be able to get something locked up Thank you for sharing that. So next round is I like to find out a little bit more about you, right? Sometimes people, they come to a show or they watch a YouTube video and they find out stuff and they want to reach out to the people without like necessarily adding value. So I like to figure out a way, like how can someone add immediate value to you or your business instead of just reaching out saying, I want information or, you know, I want to take, take, take. It's a good question. So if someone wants to reach out to me and like, yeah, how could they you before, you know, asking you for something. And, and so I'll give you an example. An example for me would be buy a copy of my book. An example would right. be go like a YouTube video, share a YouTube video, different things like that. Make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, for someone to add value to me personally would be, you know, if you, if you're coming to me for advice, just be, be serious about following through. Um, you know, I, I think that's what I would say is if I'm helping someone, you know, with some question that they have, then, you know, just be, just come prepared with an open mind is what I would say. It's just, yeah, just come prepared with an open mind. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that's it. Just be willing to, listen and you know learn from experience by no means i'm saying i'm the most experienced guy but you know i've had my fair share of things that have went well my fair share of things that haven't gone well so as long as you come to the table with an open mind of learning uh then you know then i, I think we'll have a good conversation at that point Excellent. Uh, so the next question is very similar and I'll give you examples. It's how can someone add long-term value to you or your business? So long-term value for me would, might be um, to send me a client or to um, send me a deal that could be like long-term value, a deal that cash flows or something like that. So how can someone add long-term value to you or your business? Yeah. I mean, how they can do that is, help us connect with people that can, you know, that we can add complementary value to, like, for example, connect us with, uh, you know, with, with a local investor that might be interested in like finding out the best way uh, to close on deals, right? Um, like connect us with those people or connect us with, 
you know, someone with influence in the industry, if you can do that, or if you can, you know, in our business, if you can help us figure out how to save time. I mean, that's like the most important thing in our business right now is how can we save time, be more efficient in our business. So yeah, if you can come up with some ideas on that, we definitely would be appreciated. Okay. Um, I So like I was saying a little bit earlier, I asked that question selfishly so I can find out how I can help my guests. Um, I do have a lot of long-term strategic partnerships that I can put you in touch with. I'll like send an email or something like that when we, you know, okay, end the great. call. Yeah. yeah, I have a lot. Um, I have a lot of people come through this podcast, some big names, some big players, have some decent connections. So I'll see what I can do in that yeah, regard. Very much appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Next, uh, we're going to get wrapped up. So what are three books that you recommend to the audience and why? Uh, three books that I recommend to the audience. Um, my, my favorite all-time book is The One Thing by Gary Keller. Yeah, I keep going back to that. Uh, that would be my all-time. It just, like, I mean, it's, it's a really good life book, I would say. Uh, I keep going back to that. And uh, another one that I read that was really good was... Uh, the book of joy, I think it's called, um, by Dalai Lama and Arch. I, I can't remember the author, but yeah, it was a really good book. Talked about you know what makes people happy. Um, and the third one is uh, start something that matters. Or I think that's what it's called. I read it like ten years ago. Uh, like start something that matters by. And this guy, he's the founder, or he was, the, I think they sold the company. He was the founder of the company Tom's, Tom's Shoes. Uh, that, was, that was a really good book that had a big influence on my life. And yeah, those, those three. And then um, other book that, you know, I mean, I know you asked for three, but the, the fourth one that kind of started down me path of eating very healthy was um, Salt, Fat and Sugar, I think was the name of the book. I read it like five years ago, four or five years ago, and it just kind of started on, uh, helped me go down this journey of eating healthy and then ended up turning vegan. You know, like just read that book, you know, started watching documentary, ended up turning vegan four, four years ago. Uh, and I think that book kind of just started it for me. Okay. Um, and you mentioned one earlier. I want to I want to hear your perspective on that one. A millionaire real estate agent. A millionaire real estate investor. Investor, yeah. 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 I mean, the blue one. Yeah, I mean, it, it like back then, this was like 2010 when I read the book. Uh, it, it started me down the path of investing, but I think there are better books out there, you know, with more updated information. So that's why I would not recommend that. I mean, like back then, there weren't as many, you know, like podcasts and stuff that you know you're doing uh so it's kind of harder to find that information that you wanted to consume but now it's much easier to you know consume the information and then i think um like some of that information people like to consume differently like through podcasts through videos rather than reading books so that's why you know i didn't i didn't mention because i read that book once and then kind of just moved on from that uh, the books that i mentioned are the ones that kind of you know, I keep going back to again and again, uh, you know, over, over years. Okay. Uh, where can listeners find out more about you online? 
I'm not very active on social media. I don't have any Instagram or anything, but um, I, I am on Facebook, but I'm also on LinkedIn. But the best way to get in touch with me is through email. So it's my first name, S-H-A-R-A-D at resimply, R-E-S-I-M-P-L-I dot com. Uh, yeah, that's that's the best way to get in touch with me. I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not active on social media. Okay. So let me rephrase. What's the best way to learn more about Resimply? I, I mean, yeah, they can they can go to our YouTube channel. Uh, okay. We have a YouTube channel uh, for Resimply. They can go there. Uh, I do a weekly mastermind call with our users. It's actually every Tuesday at 2 p.m. EST. We do that. Uh, and then, yeah, they can go to resimply.com and uh, learn a little bit more about uh, about what we do at Resimply, and then they can contact us and have any questions. We'll be more than happy to answer. We also offer 14-day free trials if they you know, if they want to sign up and just kind of take it for a test drive. Yeah, I, I would love to. We didn't go like too deep into the software, but I would love to have you or someone from your company come back and talk about it. Uh, maybe we can collaborate in the future. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That would be great. What's one question you wish I had asked you and how would you have answered? Oh, man. One question I, I like to ask on my podcast for the guests. Uh, I think it's a great question is if you could spend one day with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would you want to spend the day with and why? Um, for me, I, I like my, my answer is like Rafael Nadal. I don't follow tennis very much anymore, but I just love his work ethics. Like never, you know, never say never attitude. So that's kind of who I would want to spend the day with and just to kind of learn, you know, his mindset behind that. Like just playing through pain and then just never giving up on anything. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, if you could close us down with one word, no explanation, what word would that be? Focus. Focus. All right, Sharad, this has been excellent. I appreciate you so much. Um, I want you to sit here so we can catch up in the green room and then we can end the show. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.